Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I read a lot of books for Spirit in Action, and they are truly wonderful, but there is a special simplicity and beauty in the books of today's Spirit in Action guest, Anita Sanchez. Anita's books are mostly targeted toward younger readers, anything from preschool to adult, and they help all readers fall in love with aspects of our world and nature that most of us ignore. Today, she joins me to speak about one of her latest books, Meltdown, Discover Earth's Irreplaceable Glaciers and Learn What You Can Do to Save Them. And you're guaranteed to learn all kinds of stories, dramas, and insights into our world that you never suspected were there. Fortunately, I have production help for today's program from Andrew Jansen. Right now, Anita Sanchez joins us via Zoom from New York State. Anita, thank you so very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. Do you do a lot of these interviews? Yes, I have done quite a few, which has been interesting. I actually talked to a radio host from Alaska who could look out his window and see glaciers, which was very cool because that's not something I can do. Up front, I'm going to ask you a question. My wife and I are going to be going over to Oregon this coming summer for a National Quaker Gathering, and we want to visit some of the parks coming back. Glacier Park is one of them we're considering. Are there any other places we should be looking for glaciers? Because I've never actually visited a glacier. Well, the place where I went, and I am not a glaciologist, you know, by profession, the place where I went was Northern Cascades National Park, which is in Washington State. That's where the glaciologist that I worked with does his research, and he goes there every year, and he's done this for almost 40 years on the same day, it's a day in August, or well, he, he's there for almost the month of August, but he visits the glaciers that are there on the same day every year. So he'll visit, you know, say Rainbow Glacier on August 10th and another glacier on August 11th and measures them and, you know, compares the measurements year by year and decade by decade. But anyway, just for me as non-expert tourist, Cascades is remarkable. It's just really the, the mountains are so steep and awesome. I'm a flatlander. I'm from upstate New York, sort of between the Adirondacks and the Catskills. And I was just blown away by the mountains of in Washington State. Well, I'll look for it. I'll add that to our itinerary. Again, we're talking about your latest book, Meltdown, Discover Earth's Irreplaceable Glaciers and Learn What You Can Do to Save Them. Was it important to include both of those things, uh, you know, that you want to learn about them, and then you say, okay, to save them. Was that a motivator for you? My friend Sam Thayer, you maybe have read some of his stuff because he's a well-known foraging author, perhaps the best-known foraging author in the U.S. He says, you care about things that you know. So the save them, was that the starting place or the ending place as you learned about glaciers? I completely agree with him. I think we will not bother saving anything unless we care about it. 
unless we know about it and understand it and love it. My original impetus for the book was I wanted to write about how amazing glaciers are. I had the opportunity to visit one as a tourist and, you know, take like a guided walk. And I thought, wow, this is just so beautiful and it's cool. And the more I researched it, I found that all these amazing animals live there, you know, polar bear. There's not on the one I was on, but, you know, polar bears and penguins and all sorts of wildlife depend on them and salmon and, you know, wow, all this amazing stuff. But then when I got into the research, I realized that with climate change, the glaciers are dwindling, they're shrinking. They're, they're, I literally watched some of them melting. So I thought, well, we have to find, you know, we have to put the tough stuff in the book as well. You know, climate change is happening and the frozen places of the world are changing. But, you know, gosh, we hear so much bad news these days. You know, it's all doom and gloom. And I mean, I admit when climate change news comes on the TV, I just want to run, change the channel. You know, let's let's binge Netflix. I'm done. Too much bad news. (laughs) So I wanted to give young people, because this is a book for young readers, a sense of possibility. You know, there's, yes, there's a lot of bad news, but we can do something about some of it. We can help it. We can change it. We can slow it down. We can do things. And I think young people have more power than they realize they have. And so a whole big chunk of the book, almost last third, is suggestions for things people can do, specifically kids, to try to, you know, help out glaciers and, you know, climate change indirectly. You've written quite a number of books, wonderful, insightful books into different parts of our ecology, the environment that so many of us dismiss as not worth knowing about. But as soon as we dig down in, we find that even things like poison ivy are important. So have you learned to love poison ivy yet? (laughs) Well, I have, you know, that is kind of my niche, the part of nature that most people either don't notice or actively despise. I have a book about dandelions. I have literally a book about mud puddles and the wildlife that use them as habitat. But one of my favorites is poison ivy. I actually have two books on poison ivy. One's a picture book for little kids and one's a book for adults. What I discovered is now, yes, I do get poison ivy. I do get itchy if I touch it. I get a rash, so it's not like I'm immune. A few people are, but I'm not one. But poison ivy is a native plant. It was here long before humans got to this continent, and it is absolutely fantastic for wildlife. So if we change our point of view from human to, say, that of a bluebird or a robin or a mockingbird or a cardinal, poison ivy is fantastic. My friend Betsy actually is one of those people who can handle poison ivy and without any reaction. We were removing it by the Quaker Meeting House in Milwaukee. We were trying to get rid of the poison ivy that was spreading all over the place and people walking around would have problems with it. And so she could actually follow underneath the ground and remove it, just pull it out, no problems. I understand you can lose that immunity too. Yes, you can. It's poison ivy is not poison like, say, arsenic. If we all eat arsenic, we'd all die. Poison ivy is an allergen. And so like allergens, you know, some people die if they eat peanuts. Other people, you know, are allergic to cat fur or some aren't. So about 15% of humans are immune and will never get it. About 15% are really, really, really sensitive. And the rest of us fall somewhere in the middle. But like all allergies, it's unpredictable and you can grow into it or grow out of it. So It's probably better not to mess with poison ivy if you don't have to, because even if you've been immune, your immune system can suddenly say, ah, enough, and start going nuts. So better not to mess with it. My book advocates for peaceful coexistence. You know, if it 
is twining around the swing set and your picnic table, fine, get rid of it. But if it's, you know, in your back 40 and not bothering anybody, just, you know, leave it alone because it's, it's a survival food for a lot of the songbirds that everybody loves. I mean, who does not love cardinals? And cardinals love poison ivy berries. It's a really important winter food for them. Well, we could talk a long time, I think, about poison ivy. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> because I was a Boy Scout growing up, and I did learn very early leaflets three, let it be. It's poison oak or ivy. But we're here really to talk about glaciers today in Meltdown. But if people do want to follow up about Poison Ivy and a number of other books that Anita Sanchez has written, her website is anitasanchez.com. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. You shouldn't confuse her, however, with the other Anita Sanchez, who's also closely related to environmental issues, ways of being in the world. Her website's slightly different, but just follow the link from nordenspiritradio.org and you'll get to the correct one. But we're talking about meltdown here. Glaciers. Glaciers are cool, aren't they? And you visited at least over in Washington State. You visited glaciers. Have you visited other glaciers personally? Have you created friendships with them? Yeah, this whole book started when I was on a just a fun tourist trip in Iceland. And I did all the tourist stuff, you know, the hot springs. It's such an, such an incredible country. And I went on an afternoon's you know, guided walk on a glacier, which was something I'd never done. And it was just so remarkable. I had assumed it was going to be like walking on a big snowbank, but there was a sense that it was something alive. I mean, glaciers move very, very slowly. You know, they move at a glacial pace, very slow. So it's not like I could see it moving, but there was a sense that it, it was something living. You walked up the side of it, kind of like climbing onto the back of this, you know, big frozen animal. The ice is colored differently, shaped differently. Parts of a glacier are white like snow, but the older the ice is, as a glacier has fissures or breaks apart, the ice on the bottom of it is blue. It's a crazy shade of blue. It's like that turquoise swimming pool blue or like a deep sapphire, just, you know, amazing colors. So I was just so entranced by this beautiful environment that I said, oh, there's there's got to be a book here someplace. Was your concern for the environment as in global warming or climate change, did that pre-exist before you visited the glaciers? Well, yes, I've been a, an environmentalist, you know, most of my life. And I've been, I, I remember, gosh, it was back in the, I guess it was the 90s. I used to work for the New York State Conservation Department we began hearing about this stuff called climate change and starting to mention it to people and talking about how it was going to change things, that storms would become more severe and icebergs would start to melt. But it all none of it really seemed real. You know, we'd mention it during a nature program, but a lot of people didn't believe in it. Nobody was really interested in it. But now people are starting to believe that it's something real. So I've, I've been concerned about it for a long time. But to be honest, when I go on vacation, I always try to just forget the bad stuff and enjoy the beauties of nature. So I wasn't really looking to research climate change. I just wanted to have a cool experience on a glacier, which I did. 
And you're from the northern part of New York. So you actually do know a little bit about winter. You probably had a really big dumping of snow recently. I don't know how close you are to the Buffalo area where they got the most. But I'm in Wisconsin, halfway up the state. Eau Claire is here, and I live out in the country. So we get winter here. Oh, yeah. Most people tend to deplore winter. How do you feel about winter? Oh, I, I love winter. I'm weird because I even like the fact that it gets dark early. I like that time of year in late November, early December, when it's not quite the holidays yet, but it's getting darker and you go in earlier and we heat with wood. So, you know, you get the wood stove going and it's a time to hang out and read and relax and nap. And, you know, so I, I enjoy winter as a time to rest before you know, the craziness of spring starts. You don't hibernate, do you? Almost. <laughs> so your book, Meltdown, is quite, quite vivid. And I think so many people just think, oh, that's a block of ice. And it's not much interesting. Those of us who've learned about the ice ages certainly can find some interesting history there. How long ago was it the last ice age finished according to the way they estimate such things? About 10,000 years. And it's believed that the, you know, the ice age ice covered a good chunk of the northern part of our planet. And so, you know, glaciers where I live in New York state, you know, you can see boulders that were picked up and moved by glaciers from one place to another, or you can see scratches on rocks where glaciers advanced or retreated, you know, and the, and the rocks, the glaciers were shoving scratched other rocks. So you can see those marks. Long Island is basically one big moraine, which is a big pile of soil that's pushed forward by a glacier, kind of like imagine a big frozen bulldozer. And then when the bulldozer goes into reverse and backs up, the big pile of sand and dirt is left there. And that's how Long Island got where it is. I used to live in southern Wisconsin, right by a place called Kettle Moraine which, of course, we've got all the evidence of what those glaciers did. And the animals that live there, all of us know that once winter comes, you want to pull out your heavier clothes, your sweaters, your, your heavy coats, all of that. Animals evidently did that too. Yeah, I mean, if you just think about your dog, the old, sure, in the ice ages, but I mean, even still today, you know, your dog grows extra fur to keep them warm for winter. And then, of course, in spring, they shed it all over the carpet. And most mammals do that as well. And whether it was woolly mammoths long ago, or whether it's uh, muskox or polar bears or snowshoe hares or whatever, today, animals grow extra fur in winter. And one of the interesting things, I, I originally, when I envisioned, you know, what, what shall I write about glaciers? This was going to be a book called Some Like It Cold. And it was going to be about animals that prefer it cold, and they can literally drop dead if it gets too warm. Animals like muskox will die if they overheat. So for some animals, glaciers are like giant air conditioners because glaciers don't melt in the summer, but they, you know, they sit there all year long and they keep the temperature cooler in the areas where they are. Is that why things like woolly mammoths or something decreased in numbers or disappeared because of the retraction of the ice ages of the glaciers? Do we know anything about that? We can speculate. I'm sure you're right that that was part of it. It may also have been hunting pressure from humans. It may have been the, the warming climate. It, it's hard to say, but, you know, probably the, the fact that their habitat was changing. 
And, you know, we're seeing that with wildlife today as their habitats change, they go extinct. Animals have always gone extinct in the past. You know, dinosaurs certainly went extinct. You know, lots of things have gone extinct. What's different now, though, is that more things are going extinct much more quickly than it used to be. So, I mean, yes, glaciers have always melted. Animals have always gone extinct. But now we're seeing a vastly speeded up timetable for all that. Woolly mammoths are certainly engaging to me, or they were engaging to me as a child. The animal that you introduced me to in Meltdown that I'm most just amazed by are ice worms. I had no idea. I've I've spoken of (laughs) ice fleas or other things like that, but ice worms, they really exist, and they've got antifreeze in their blood, and and if they get too warm, they die off. Tell us, people, a little bit about ice worms because it seems unbelievable. Yeah, they're really amazing. They are the size of an eyelash, and they do not like light. So during the day, they kind of burrow down between this this ice crystals down into the glacier. They only live on glaciers. They don't live on snow, and no one knows why this is. When it starts to get darker and colder, then they come back up to the surface and they feed on little specks of dust or plant material that the winds have blown onto the glaciers. And they're so sensitive to warmth that even if you pick one up and put it in your hand, it will die. There's millions, billions of them on a single glacier. Since they only live on glaciers, they're tied to glaciers. So if they're they're particular and they don't you know travel because they're so teeny. So if their particular glacier melts then that population of ice worms is done. And there must be something in the ecological pyramid that eats them. Who eats ice worms? I've never used them for fishing, for sure. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're pretty tiny. They're eaten by various types of birds. And, you know, we don't really think of birds on glaciers, but there are a lot of birds that live in glacier territory. There's even a type of bird. It's a type of finch that will literally build its nest on ice. It'll it'll look for like a craggy chunk of ice and build its nest there. So birds that live in northern climates will eat the ice worms. So, you know, it's all part of the giant food web where, you know, everything is eaten by something and eats something. And it's, you know, it's all part of the connection of nature. When you say in Meltdown that they essentially have antifreeze as their blood, it's it's what makes them survivable. So they don't freeze up and go the way that most of us fear we would if we were stuck on a glacier. I know how important it is that we not stay anthropocentric. We have to consider that what affects other animals affects us. And the thought that there is a being that pumps antifreeze through its body, that's got to be important to humans along the way, even though we don't maybe know it yet. You must see those building blocks much more intricately than I have a grasp of. Where do you see that kind of thing as being useful? Well, just in this example, when I was reading about ice worms, I came across the research of a scientist who's researching how the ice worms manage to live in, you know, be in a freezing environment, yet not freeze solid. And the scientist's interest in it was she was working with organ transplants. So when you take an organ from a donor, you can't freeze it because it will destroy some of the cells in it, but you need to keep it cool until it can be transplanted into the recipient. So she was trying to figure out how the chemistry worked, how this creature could 
be in a freezing environment yet not freeze solid because the longer you can keep a heart or a longer liver or a kidney viable, you know, the better chance you have of a successful transplant. You know, most of us are never going to walk on a glacier and most of us are never going to see an ice worm. And it's easy to think, well, you know, what difference does it make to my life really if all the glaciers melt and all the ice worms go extinct? But there are possible benefits and then, as, as as you say, even if there aren't or we never discover them, you know, do creatures like ice worms have some sort of spiritual right to exist as we do? I think they do. And when we remove one support of this chain of life, we never know what else will fall down because of that. It's like we're causing avalanches by you get rid of ice worms and then the sparrows go and then or the thrushes go and then who knows what else. And it all snowballs, so to speak. Right. And, and we, we tend not to see those invisible connections. I mean, an example closer to home would be people like I, in, there was an area where I used to live where you could hear owls hooting at night in the backyard. How cool is that? But then, you know, people had mice problems put down poison, you know, rat poison for, for the mice. And after a few years, you know, they weren't hearing owls hooting as much. And, you know, you don't make the connection. Well, rat poison kills the mice. The owl eats a mouse that's got some rat poison in it. The owl gets rat poison in its tissues. Eventually the owl dies. So we don't see the invisible connections. It's easy. But like you said, when we remove one piece of the puzzle, it has a lot of connections to other pieces that we might not have known about. Well, another thing about glaciers that I think I probably knew on some level, but I think I probably didn't consider, I, I was a physicist along the way. So the fact that glaciers, we think of them as solid, we think of them like stone, but they're not. They're actually fluid in a way, just a very slow way, but they're fluid. And that's quite an insight into how the world exists. The, something we thought was so clear is so different. Did that open your mind? Or did Were you aware of that before? No, I, you're, I never really thought about it. One book I was reading, is it's a really cool book called Ice. And it's about the amazing properties of ice. And it said, if you imagine if you had an icicle and you attached a heavy weight to the tip of the icicle somehow, the icicle would slowly lengthen till the weight touched the ground because ice has plasticity, which, you know, which means that it moves, it stretches. It's kind of like, you know, very, very, very slow rubber. So when you have basically glaciers formed when a lot of snow piles up and the weight of the piled up snow compresses and compresses until it compresses into this super hard ice. But this very hard ice then begins to slowly roll kind of like a giant conveyor belt down a slope because glaciers tend to form on the sides of mountains. And so once they're formed, they'll slowly begin to flow down the slope. They're often compared to frozen rivers. It happens that you live in northern New York State I live halfway up Wisconsin, so that means it's about two and a half hours drive for me to get up to Lake Superior. And the Great Lakes are among the world's wonderful repositories of fresh water. The one that so few of us take count of is that glaciers are also a great repository. How significant are they? Yeah, the glaciers have a huge amount of fresh water. And because a glacier isn't a big pile of snow, they're, they're super 
densely compressed snow, so they hold a lot more water than you know an equivalent-sized pile of snow would. So it depends where you live. For some of us, like where I live, glaciers don't supply you know my fresh water. But if you live in Washington State or Oregon or various mountain communities, Peru, Nepal, there are some communities that are completely dependent on glaciers for their fresh water. And ironically, right now because the temperature is warming. I was reading about an area in Peru where there, there's lots more water than they used to have. It's a fairly arid region, but now there's more water. They're actually doing more farming there. You might, might have noticed that you can buy blueberries and stuff like that in the grocery store that come from Peru. You know, next time you go shopping for fruit, you know, look, look where it comes from. And I've bought these amazing blueberries from Peru. They're watered with glacial melt. But of course, what's happening over the years you know, and into the future, as the glacier melts more and more and more, those blueberry farms are not going to last very long because their source of fresh water is just going to dry up. And then it is a, you know, a truly, it's almost a desert region except for the glacial water. So there's places in the world that depend on glaciers for fresh water, but probably for most of the United States, that's not the case. As you say, the source of those blueberries is going to dry up. Actually, a lot of produce in the United States comes from the eastern regions of like Oregon and other places, places which are mostly desert, but we've taken rivers like has been done with the Colorado River. And we've drained it off, so it can't be used elsewhere anymore. But for the moment, it's producing some riches. What is a good time length, in your sense, as a naturalist, to look forward to try and see the consequences? When they do an environmental impact statement, how far is it good to look ahead? 50 years, 100 years? What's good? Well, I think people are mostly interested in what's going to happen in their lifetime. And, you know, in the next 10 years, I mean, we're obviously seeing right now eerie changes in weather patterns, you know, record heat in England, record cold in some places. Right now, California, Los Angeles is being, you know, battered with with rainstorms, the fires in Australia. So we're seeing a lot of the effects of climate change now. We're also interested in our kids. I mean, my granddaughter is going to, you know, hopefully live long into the future. And what she'll see, I don't know. It is estimated that a lot of the glaciers will be gone by 2050, say. So that's that's not very long from now. So what are the long-term effects of the loss of these glaciers? So what happens if Antarctica melts? The sea levels rise. I know that's one of the consequences that's predicted. Does it mean that we'll actually lose access to fresh water? No, well, depending on, you know, again, where you live, you know, not all of us get our fresh water from glaciers. But one of the scary things about climate change is nobody really knows. Well, you know, what is going to happen? What are going to be the effects? It used to be called global warming because what's happening is that human-caused pollution is trapping the sun's heat closer to the planet, which is raising the temperature by just a few degrees. And at first, one reason no one got too exercised about it was that you know, heck, who cares if you raise the temperature three degrees, you know, when it's a cold winter day, Would I think it'd be nice to warm it up a little bit. So nobody got really upset about it. In fact, people have known global warming was happening since the late 1800s, but it seemed like kind of like a nice thing. We'd all have, you know, longer growing seasons. <laughs> In Wisconsin, a lot of people think that as well. Warmer temperatures is not going to be bad. Yeah, you, know, you can't blame us. You know, where I am today, it's 21 degrees. I wouldn't mind if it was 75. But like we were saying with, you know, the ice worms, 
when you change something, you change everything. And so the fact that the sea levels rise, there's more fresh water in the seas, which changes the nature of the ocean, which affects coral reefs and marine wildlife, and makes the fact that there's more fresh water pouring into the ocean makes storms be different because storms are formed over the oceans. And so the clouds that are rising from the oceans have more water content. So we're getting bigger storms. So, so it's, you know, it's been very hard for scientists to predict exactly what's going to happen. And it's also very hard to say exactly, you know, this causes that. But more and more, I think more people are beginning to realize that, yes, climate change is happening. And so we really, we need to pay attention to it. We need to stop ignoring it. Folks, you're listening to Spirit in Action. My guest today is Anita Sanchez. She's joining us from upstate New York, and she's the author of the book Meltdown, Discover Earth's Irreplaceable Glaciers and Learn What You Can Do to Save Them. That's not the only book she's written by any means. Among some of the other gems that she's written is In Praise of Poison Ivy. There's Leaflets Three Let It Be, Itch, Everything You Didn't Want to Know About What Makes You Scratch and Rotten, Vultures, Beetles, Slime, and Nature's Other Decomposers. All number of wonderful books. Generally, they're targeted towards a younger group. And I wanted to ask you about that, Anita, right away, because I know that you started out leading walks and you're working as a, I think a teenager at the time giving tours and plant identification all this kind of thing why younger people aren't the older people the ones who are, have their hands on the apparatus of state and we those are the ones we need to change why talking to younger people through your wonderful books well, I secretly hope that adults will get a lot out of my children's books because, of course, adults are the ones who buy the books and often the ones who read the books out loud to the kids. Some of my books are picture books and like my book, Hello Puddle, which is about animals that use wildlife is for preschoolers. And so mom and dad and grandma are going to read it out loud. And I've always said, if you ever really want to understand a complicated topic, go to the children's section and get a really good kid's book about it, because that will break it down to its simplest parts. But of course, you know, I'm hoping to persuade and make the next generation get interested in the environment. And my focus has always been on nature. My books are about science, yes, but my main interest is in nature because I want to make kids fall in love with the outdoors, with nature. I think most kids are a little hesitant, a little scared to go outside. It's something they rarely do. I mean, they go outside, they play soccer on a mowed lawn, but kids don't, you know, go out in the back 40 and tromp around in the woods like I used to do. And I think they're all a little reluctant and scared to do that. So I'm trying to make kids get interested in nature. So most of glaciers are actually a stretch for me. Most of my books are more about things that you might see in your backyard, like puddles or dandelions. Folks, we have a link to Anita Sanchez's website, anitasanchez.com, not to be confused with the other Anita Sanchez, who also writes on environmental and world issues. We've got the link on org, along with the links to all of our guests of the past 17 and a half years, people doing world healing work. And that is, Anita, how I see your work as work that's going to help the world be a better place for all of us. And us is bigger than just the human species, in my view as well. So I really appreciate that you're doing that and that you're opening eyes of wonder in the youth. But again, folks, come to org. listen to all our guests, 
peace and justice, environmentalism are the three big topics and a lot of other ways that people are doing world healing are included. Just visit our site and listen to people thoughtfully talking about what's important. The point of view for Northern Spirit Radio is not to say other people are bad, but to find out what we can do for all of us together. And so please visit our site, check that out, leave comments on our programs after you listen to them. You can also donate to support us. We're supported by individuals, not by corporations or government. And that's an important thing for us. And so one of the reasons that we reach so widely is because our programs are carried on some 35 to 45 community radio stations nationwide. And I really hope that you're supporting them, including the people at Fayetteville, Arkansas, where they're having on KPSQ a fundraiser right now. Please support your local community radio station. And if you can, make a donation to NorthernSpiritRadio.org. And make sure you read all of Anita Sanchez's books. And I don't know, there's some 17, 18, 19. I, I think you're releasing three this year, aren't you? Yes, I'm very lucky. Of course, you know, COVID and all those things slow down a bunch of uh, my bunch of deadlines. My book that's coming out in March really delved into some issues of religion. It's called The Monkey Trial. And it's about the uh, teacher who was arrested for teaching evolution in a public school classroom. He was literally arrested and tried for the crime. And it was a media circus. It was one of the first media circuses where, you know, the press was going nuts and paparazzi were taking pictures and stuff. Really interesting story. So that's coming out in March. That was a a switch for me. That was really fun because it was science, but not nature. So remember, folks, anitasanchez.com is where you can find her. But you could find, if you search for Meltdown, Anita, I think you'll probably find her book right away just uh, with a simple search. The full name of the book, Meltdown, Discover Earth's Irreplaceable Glaciers and Learn What You Can Do to Save Them. Let's talk some more about what's important or interesting about glaciers. You uh, spoke of someone who actually was over the course of, what, 40 years? He's measuring the glaciers, how big, how long they are. Some people are dubious about what's happening with climate change, but a person who repeats the same measurement at the same place over 40 years can certainly tell you. How much do we know about how much glaciers are retreating? They're getting smaller at a frightening rate, and it's increasing every year, and not or most years, not every single year, but it, it's increasing most years. His name is Dr. Maury Pelto. He has a wonderful blog he does called From a Glacier's Perspective. So I visited with him. He actually is based in Massachusetts, but he goes out to Northern Cascades every year. And as you say, over 40 years, you really see when you measure the small glacier, for instance, called the Rainbow Glacier, and it's a mere 200 years old. So it hasn't been around, you know, since the dawn of time or anything. But when he measures it and then comes back next year and measures it, and it's, you know, 30 feet shorter than it was last year. And the next year, it's 40 feet shorter than it was the year before that. You know, you can really graphically see it. Several of the glaciers that he used to measure just aren't there anymore. And it's frightening when you project that into the future a little bit. And again, the horizon that people are seeing in terms of what's important, the seven generation principle, which we have from Native American folks, I think 
would serve us well. And most people aren't even necessarily seeing 10 years into the future. Do you find any hope that that is actually changing? I think your books try and lead us to know what's here so that we can actually value the next lifespan. Yeah, I do see a lot of reasons to be optimistic for the future. We're all familiar with with Greta Thunberg, but I just had to retell her story in the book because it is so amazing. I think she was in eighth grade when she started and she decided on her own and her parents allowed her to do this. She decided to cut school on a Friday in Sweden and she went and stood outside the Swedish parliament building, I think it was, with a sign that said in Swedish, school strike for climate change. And she just kept doing it day after every, every Friday after Friday. And someone took her picture and put it in the paper and One of the interesting things, I think, is the power of social media. I mean, kids these days, you know, it's all about social media. And there's a lot of bad things about it, but there's a lot of good things, too. And Greta's strike went viral, and it really spread to the younger generation. And it really got a lot of global attention on climate change. So that's what I mean when I say that young people have more power than they think they do. They have the power that some of us older folks don't have to, you know, really know how this, you know, the social media stuff works. How do you make something go viral on TikTok, for instance? I don't know, but, you know, they know. One of the things that really woke people up to climate change in, I think it was 2019, 2018, someone took a video of literally billions of gallons of water pouring off a glacier during a heat wave in a matter of hours. And this video went viral and millions, maybe even billions of people saw it. And again, it really woke people up to what's going on. I don't know how much I want to try and delve into climate change. You're not necessarily a climate change expert. You are connected with the earth uh, through the plants, the animals, and the glaciers of the earth. But one of the key points that some people just cannot seem to get through their head is the difference between weather and climate. And you do talk about that in Meltdown. What is the difference between climate and weather? Well, weather is what happens. You know, today it's cold, tomorrow it's hot. And, you know, last week we had a January thaw. That wasn't necessarily caused by climate change. Last week here it was 46, but now we're back to seasonal temperatures, as they say. For climate, you have to take the longer view. And I think that's hard for humans to do. We're very focused in the here and now. But we well, we always look at the short term. Well, you know, the weather's been pretty normal, so everything's fine. But it's like you were saying about the Colorado River, you know, or the glacier water in Peru. You know, we look at the short term. Yeah, things are great, but we don't want to look ahead at the longer term. Again, I don't want to go too deeply into climate change in general, because I think there's value in just knowing this piece of the world right in front of you, which you do so well in your books. And again, folks, we're speaking with Anita Sanchez. I should mention your name once or twice more, so people can go to anitasanchez.com. But clearly, the rise of fossil fuels was a very big part of what got climate change going big time. And that happened along with the industrial revolution. It happened about going from whale oil for lamps to going to petroleum for lamps. Do you see hope that we can actually reverse that now? And can we actually provide our energy needs via solar and wind and geothermal and so on? Does that look hopeful to you? 
It does. I'm very encouraged by you know legislation that's been passed recently that's really focusing on climate change and alternate energy sources. You know, mandating that vehicles have to reach certain emissions by certain dates. I mean, I, I think that's a huge hope for the future. When people ask me what they can do to affect climate change, I always say it's one four-letter word. It's vote. If we vote for politicians who really take climate change seriously and who really take environmental protection seriously, then we'll have legislation that will help us fight it. And it, it's true on the local level too, not just the national level. I mean, just, just as a, a local example in my little town, they were planning on putting a truck stop near an elementary school. And a truck stop's a place where trucks would idle. But, you know, our local politicians that we voted for in small local elections that most people don't pay much attention to were able to stop that and not have trucks idling and putting carbon into the air, particularly right near an elementary school, which is affecting kids' health. So elections really matter in environmental protection, both on big global issues and on little issues that are right in our backyard. And that's a key phrase, not in my backyard. The thing I think you teach in your books, which I think is so valuable, is that people have to learn my backyard extends to the entire globe. And so just moving it one mile down may get it away from the elementary school, but then there may be the senior residence that gets affected by it. The whole world is our backyard. And I really think that the way you connect with individual plants, people learning what dandelions are good for. I cook with them. I've learned uh, how to make dandelion fritters, and I, I've learned how to make pesto using dandelion leaves. Is that something that you also know how to do or have learned? I mean, I when you learn about plants the way that you need to in order to see that birds are eating poison ivy berries, have you tried to steal their food from them by learning to cook? With them? <laughs> well, I'm sorry to say that I am an absolutely appalling cook. I can't boil water. I'm a terrible cook. I have no excuse. I'm just, it's not something I'm good at. So no, I'm not much of a forager, but I've always believed that, as we were saying before, people will only conserve what they love and that fear and scolding are bad ways to motivate people. My very first book was about dandelions. It's called The Teeth of the Lion. And I got all mad and wanted to write it when I found out about how lawn pesticides have a terrible effect on wildlife, particularly songbirds. I mean, the Audubon Society estimates, and this is a conservative figure, that something like 7 million songbirds die from the effect of, you know, yard herbicides and pesticides. Not, I'm not talking about crops, but, you know, just our backyards and gardens and stuff. So I wanted to write this polemic about how horrible pesticides are, but you know, no one's going to want to read it. Nobody wants more bad news. So I started researching all the cool stuff about dandelions, cooking, medicine, history, lore. They're used in, you know, magic and witchcraft and all just all kinds of whatever cool stuff I could find. And that made it something hopefully that people would want to read. And then there's one chapter about the effects of herbicides. And hopefully by the time they've plowed through the first 10 chapters, they're okay with just, just one chapter about the bad news. So I try to make people fall in love. That's I think that's my role. I'm a matchmaker. I try to make people fall in love with nature. For some people, it's dandelions because they can forage them. With maybe a little kid, it's a mud puddle they can splash in. I'm the, the matchmaker. 
Yeah, I love one of the things on your blog. And folks, Anita Sanchez on her website, anitasanchez.com, also includes the Unmode blog, or at least she did until six months ago or so. I haven't seen you post since then. But a question, you know, like, why do squirrels like puddles? I mean, it's such a wonderful human question, because I watch the squirrels dance in the trees outside my window. And it's like, okay, where do they get their drink? Well, I happen to live near a creek. They could go down there. But puddles evidently are important, too, to squirrels. Who knew? (laughs) Yeah, I still do the blog. You're right. I I haven't posted in a while, but I still do that. The puddle book is one of my favorites. It was really fun researching how wildlife use puddles. And apparently there are some birds like barn swallows whose numbers are in decline because they just aren't puddles like they used to be. So much of our world is blacktop to these days. We don't have the dirt roads and the barnyards and stuff we used to. So there aren't as many puddles for the barn swallows and the robins and the the mud daubers and the, the toads and all the different types of animals that use puddles for habitat. So that's one for for little kids because little kids love puddles. They just do. And I wanted to go beyond, you know, splashing around in your boots in a puddle and thinking about all the different animals that use both water and the mud for food or water or shelter. One of the things that you do in your books, certainly in Meltdown, and I haven't read your other books, but now I need to, is you mix the wonder, the wonderful stories, and the wonder-inducing glimpses with science. I think Meltdown is aimed at an older age. It's not for your preschoolers, I'm pretty sure, because, for instance, in the chapter where you talk about atmospheric CO2 levels, you know that's probably not a preschool material. What age is this book aimed at? You know, that's a good question. I hope even a preschooler or a little kid can enjoy the illustrations, especially of the wildlife that use glaciers, because there's a wonderful illustrator, Luisa Uribe, who did just magnificent illustrations. So you can enjoy it just on that level of looking at the pictures. But it's aimed at maybe readers 10 and up and particularly for maybe even 12-ish and up for some of the harder science. But I also hope, as I said before, that adults will get a lot out of it. I know before I started writing it, I was pretty hazy on a lot of the details of climate change, and I still am. And I tried to break down the science into understandable chunks for you know young people, but also for adults who just want to figure out some of this really confusing stuff. An important part of the book, Meltdown, is toward the end, you have a glacier for tomorrow, how to take action. So you're actually interested in motivating people to preserve this loved thing that we could introduce into our hearts, glaciers. Talk about some of the points that you make in what we can do, because if we can't do anything then it might be useless knowledge because it's going to be gone. Why do you love someone who's going to be gone tomorrow, right? What can we do to actually make a livable future possible for all of us on the planet, not just humans? Well, as I say in the book, one of the big things is vote. Obviously, most of my readers are too young to vote yet, but I have seen how kids can be an advocate for voting. They can make sure everyone in their family votes. They can figure out how to vote. And it's in many places, it's getting harder to vote. Where do you go? How do absentee ballots work? Where are the ballot drop boxes? What are the deadlines? What are the dates? Early voting is is huge. You know, Kids can get active in educating their families about that sort of stuff. 
There's all this stuff we've all heard about, you know, not using plastic straws and changing your light bulbs and stuff like that. And, and that's that's important, too. One of the biggest things I found is food choices on what we eat really affects glaciers. For example, if you go to the store and buy an apple, if I buy an apple from Washington State, it's been trucked all the way across the continent and trucks are way, way worse than cars at putting carbon and pollution into the atmosphere. If I buy an apple that's grown in upstate New York, I'm really having an effect. So food choices are were one of the big things that I write about. Eating less beef. I mean, we're never going to stop eating cheeseburgers, but trying to eat more locally sourced meat, maybe less meat, because a lot of the clearing of the rainforest that's happening is for the purpose of growing beef, you know, cheap hamburgers at fast food places. And when the rainforest is destroyed, the trees that take carbon out of the air are destroyed. So things that, you know... Again, it's those invisible connections, those things we don't see. You get a Big Mac and you're affecting the glaciers. So we need to be more aware of our lifestyle choices. Have you received feedback from children or from their families that says that they've read your books and therefore they deal differently with dandelions, uh, the kids or their parents? Because it often happens together. Actually, I have a granddaughter And Billy decided she would only eat happy meat. Animals that were raised in nasty ways, she wasn't going to eat them anymore. She would only eat happy meat. And she's eight years old. So are you seeing people impacted by your books? Are you getting that feedback directly? That's a great story. Yes, I do hear from kids and, and also from parents who, you know, that's so rewarding when you hear that someone is, you know, is looking at things differently or is is changing their lifestyle. And that's one of my goals to get people to look at the world differently. There's a great Thoreau quote that goes, it's not what you look at, it's what you see. Most people, when they look at dandelions, see something they have to put a pesticide on. And I see something that's really beautiful. I just love dandelions. People look at poison ivy and think, you know, evil, you know, bad, terrible. And I see bluebirds eating the berries. So I'm trying to get people to look at things in a different light. You even talk about plastics and the importance. I mean, plastics, most people don't realize the lion's share of plastic is actually made from petroleum. Not that it can't be made from other things. One of the things that I've done for decades now is I carry a backpack in my car. So if ever I go to a restaurant where they have throwaway dishes, I simply take mine out and say, here, put it on my plate or here, I'm going to use my cup for water or whatever. What's your concern about plastics as related to glaciers? Well, the process of making plastic does put some pollutants into the air, so that adds to climate change. And then plastic, they're made from petroleum, so it's just another reason for us to keep wedded to petroleum, which is you know the, the major cause of global warming, the petroleum-caused pollution. That's a very interesting point you make, that we have the technology right now. We don't you need to invent it. We know how to make plastic out of other stuff. You can make plastic that melts away when it gets wet. You can make plastic out of corn. You can make it out of seaweed. You can make it out of sawdust. You can make it out of all kinds of things. We just need to get behind it. And we need to sort of, you know, when we go grocery shopping, when you buy something that's better for the environment, for instance, coffee that's grown in an environmentally friendly way, you help bring the price down. It used to be if you bought fair trade shade grown coffee, 
It cost a fortune, but as more and more people bought it, and then Newman's Own started making it, and even McDonald's started selling it at one point, the price came way down. So now environmentally sourced coffee isn't that much more expensive than regular coffee. So every time we we buy something like biodegradable plastic, we're kind of voting with our consumer dollars for that product. I still think you're missing out, Anita, by the way, by the fact that you're, you don't cook. And uh, I can teach you how to boil. <laughs> I, know. I, I can teach you how to boil water if you need help. But I have a feeling foraging is one of the things we can best do to connect people to the plants in their garden that they don't even know. There are things that we consider to be weeds that grow in our garden. We rip them out, throw them away as weeds, but they're just as good as lettuce or anything else or spinach for cooking. So I want to encourage you, Anita Sanchez, that one of your next books is going to deal with foraging. It's going to be a cookbook and that you're going to teach yourself cooking. It's so clear to me that you've learned the science, you've learned worldview, you've learned to identify plants and animals and such that most of us miss because of your research. And I hereby offer you, straight from spirit and action to Anita Sanchez, your challenge to learn how to cook with foraged foods. Will you accept my challenge? I will. That's a very good one. One of my resolutions for this year is to eat more salad. And it's true. A lot of the greens that we eat out of the garden are more nutritious way more nutritious than lettuce. And also a lot of the greens, you know, when you're talking about foraging, it's got to be done sustainably. So you don't want to go, say, pick a huge amount of fern fiddleheads because you'll wipe out all the ferns in the forest if you pick too many. Whereas a lot of the salad greens that we can pick, you know, wild stuff are not native plants. They come from Europe, just like dandelions do. They're not Native American plants. So we can pick all the dandelion greens, violet greens, clover leaves, wild onions. You know, there's all kinds of non-native plants that we can pick and they're great to eat and really nutritious. So my next step will be to learn how to cook them because you can also cook them. Well, and if you contact me again, I'll also give you my recipe for wild rice acorn burgers, which I invented this because I wanted to learn how to cook with acorns, which if you grow enough oak trees, and they grow everywhere around where you are, I'm sure you have plenty of oaks, right? If you start eating acorns and use them as a food source, which used to be very common in both North America and in Europe, you don't have to cut down the trees to create a field to grow the food that you eat. And so we can let the forests continue just by eating acorns. So if you want my recipe, I'll be happy to pass it to you, Anita, and it can be part of your book even if you wish. Sounds great. So folks, we've been speaking with Anita Sanchez, her website, anitasanchez.com, her latest book, Meltdown, Discover Earth's Irreplaceable Glaciers and Learn What You Can Do to Save Them. And really, again, folks, that's only one of many wonderful books that will open you to wonder and amazement at the world around us. Thank you so much, Anita, for doing that work with our youth, with our adults, with the world and making it a better place. Thank you so much for your work and for this wonderful show. And again, her website, anitasanchez.com, links on nordenspiritradio.org. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on nordenspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh